This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. My guest today is Mark Dunkelman, author of Brothers One and All, a book about the 154th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment. There are hundreds, more likely several thousand, of Civil War regimental histories to be found in libraries and bookshelves. What makes this one different? We'll find out when we return with Mark Dunkelman on Civil War Talk Radio. Wherever you are, you deserve World Spa, a day spa for both men and women specializing in Western therapies with age-old Eastern techniques. All World Spa providers are professionally licensed specialists in their fields. We provide spa treatments for all schedules, from as little as 30 minutes to all-day programs. World Spa also has a spiritual library where you can relax and enjoy our collection of books, videos, and audio tapes. World Spa is open seven days a week by appointment and features a variety of special treatments, spa services, facials, exfoliation, and much more. We also offer products such as beauty and skin treatments, health drinks, herbal teas, and food supplements. World Spa also accommodates groups of five or more so you can make it a full and special day. Come enjoy the World Spa difference. Call us today at 619-624-0506 or visit us on the web at www.worldspas.org. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Are you a health-conscious, motivated mom who wants to work part-time from home? Do you want to enhance your family's income, get out of debt, experience financial freedom, create a flexible schedule, set your own hours? These benefits are available to top performers of this 34-year-old, solid, stable company. www.lisastafford.com Achieve personal wellness goals and make a difference in the lives of others. Receive coaching from the top achievers at this company. For more information, go online, lisastafford.com. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Prokopovich, talking from my office at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for or on behalf of the university, which hardly knows what I'm up to, I imagine. Today we're going to be talking about the an institution that I find particularly interesting, the Civil War Regiment. Before doing that, I want to say a brief uh, welcome back to all listeners This is the second show of the second season. If you're listening in archives, it's back in September 2005. And I first want to apologize for any technical issues we had the previous week. The show seems to be in a different studio now and apparently has different 
uh, sponsors or at least different commercials being played uh, at different times. If they're urging you to try wellness products, it could be that we've been uh, taking the spot of a uh, health show or something like that. It would be good for Civil War students to be healthy. Most of us are white middle-aged men, slightly overweight with beards, and if we all consumed health food and so on, it might be better for the whole Civil War community, uh, speaking for myself at least. Before going further, one more word of introduction. I wanted to try a scientific experiment this week. Uh, our topic, I mentioned the Civil War Regiment, is something that I've looked at a little in my own research, including a, uh, a book about the Army of the Ohio titled All for the Regiment. I was discussing this book with a colleague of mine, Mike Palmer, at East Carolina, who's written an excellent book called Command at Sea, published by Harvard University Press, highly recommended if you're interested in naval history. And we were discussing the fact that books that don't have huge audiences end up on Amazon.com or similar places in their bestseller lists somewhere around the 300, 500, 700,000 mark uh, in, in the ranks of bestsellers. The theory we came up with was that a single book sale might move a book up 100,000 places in the bestseller ranks for a place like Amazon.com. So I want to urge, without a trace of self-interest, all regular listeners of Civil War talk radio, there could be five, ten, even more, to go out and buy another copy of All for the Regiment, learn about the Army of the Ohio, and we'll see next week if indeed one or two purchases moves the book up 500,000 places in the bestseller lists. It, since you already have a copy, I know you can use this one for a, a holiday gift or otherwise. Well, enough business. On to uh, uh, today's discussion. Our guest today is Mark Dunkelman, author of Brothers One and All, Esprit de Corps in the Civil War Regiment. And be sure and buy a copy of that, too, while you're picking up all for the regiment. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry, and thank you for giving the plug for my book so I didn't have to do it myself. Well, that, that's what this is all about here. Um, we, we want to, It's an opportunity to tell the Civil War community what people are doing uh, when it's something worthwhile, and your book certainly is. Tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Uh, do you write for a living? Is this something you, this is your main occupation? This is what I've been doing for a number of years at this point, and uh, perhaps I can best explain it by giving you a little background on how I became to be interested in the 154th New York Volunteers, which is been the subject of my work, which to date includes three books. I have a fourth forecoming, a fifth in progress, and uh, numerous articles in popular and scholarly magazines and journals on the Civil War era. Well, well do tell us, uh, how, how did you come to, uh, to this particular interest? Long before I had ever heard the term oral history, it had an effect on me. I grew up in Buffalo, New York in the uh, 50s and 60s, and my father had grown up 50-some miles south of Buffalo in the township of Ellicottville in Cattaraugus County, New York, and lived on a farm with his parents, his younger sister, my Aunt Flores, and his maternal grandfather, whose name was John Longhans and was a veteran of the Civil War. And 
my father was 16 in 1929. My aunt was nine when the old man died. My aunt told me that they were downstairs in the kitchen of the farmhouse having breakfast when they heard a thump on the floor upstairs and they ran up to find their 85-year-old grandfather lying dead on the floor. The obituary in the weekly Ellicottville Post the succeeding week read, John Longhans, Civil War veteran dies, was corporal in old 154th and marched with Sherman to the sea. This is how the man wanted to be remembered. His 85 active years had been telescoped into the nine months he had served in the Civil War as a member of the 154th New York, marching with General Sherman through Georgia and the Carolinas. Now, we had a copy of that newspaper at home, but it didn't have much information in it about his Civil War service other than that headline. However, my father had retained the stories that his grandfather had told him and passed them along to me. And I can't tell you, Jerry, when I first heard these stories, but they gripped me from the start. And I was fortunate enough at one point, my dad brought home an old reel-to-reel tape recorder from his office. And for some reason, I sat him down and I, I taped recorded him uh, retelling these stories that he had heard during his childhood from his grandfather. And eventually I got the old manual typewriter out and transcribed them. So I'm very fortunate in that I have these, my father's recollections verbatim, uh, and they are untarnished, if you will, by the lapse of time and memory. And in essence, the stories he told me were of his grandfather marching through Georgia. The Carolinas always seemed to be left out of this story. Uh, during the famous march to the sea, and of course foraging, stealing the pigs and chickens, uh, the reaction of southern plantation and farm owners of despair and protest, and then of course the great exodus of freed slaves joining the army and the problems that they caused in caring for them. And then there was a, a very personal story, and one that I've thought about frequently, uh, that one of these escaped slaves, and my father said he couldn't remember his name, indicating, of course, that he had once known this individual's name, attached himself to my great-grandfather and acted as his servant during the marches. And according to my father, my great-grandfather couldn't shake this fellow. He insisted he was going to come up north and work on the Longhans family farm, and it wasn't until uh, after the war closed that he was able to elude him somehow. And I've often thought, gee, is there an African-American family out there who has handed down an oral tradition about their ancestor who left some Georgia farm and attached himself to a young German-American and uh, in that manner found his way up north? Uh, I sure would love to find that particular family. Uh, so those were the stories that I heard as a child, and, and they just gripped me. And in addition to those, uh, one night my father drove me out to my Aunt Flores' house, 
and she brought out six wartime letters that great-grandfather Lang Hans had written to a younger brother. And, of course, I was in awe to read these for the first time, and I copied them by hand and eventually uh, transcribed them on a typewriter. I'm doing all this at age 12, 14, my high school years, and, of course, uh, I'm of the certain age to have grown up during that era, during the Civil War centennial. And so uh, there was a tremendous amount of interest in the war during that period, which uh, was fertile ground for me to begin this study. Now, in addition to the the oral history I received from my father and the precious primary sources, although I had no idea that that's what they were referred to, that my aunt had, uh, there were the tangible evidence of my great-grandfather's service preserved in our family, including his Silver Star 20th Corps badge engraved with his name and regiment, the buttons from his Grand Army of the Republic coat, numerous ribbons and badges he had worn at various reunions, and in an envelope marked Lookout Mountain, some acorns that he had kept, in a small box, which I have since done some research with, uh, with a box expert at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and he told me that this box dates from the 1850s. It's a paper mache box that obviously belonged to a lady. It's got a Spanish-looking woman on the cover, on the lid of the box, inside of which is a mirror, very delicately and nicely uh, ornamented. And inside of this box are three cotton balls that, according to our family story, John Longhans picked during Sherman's March to the Sea. Now, he was a German immigrant. He had never seen cotton growing. So he picked one ball that's still closed, one ball that's partially opened, and another one that its tuft is completely flowing out of. And so here were tangible evidence and, and mementos that had that patina of age on them and just reinforced to me the allure of the era. And I wanted to find out more. So my father took me down to Ellicottville, and we visited the Ellicottville Historical Society. And they had a few little newspaper articles from uh, from the uh, era. And not much else, unfortunately, because eventually they had a fire, bad fire down there, which destroyed a lot of their collections. Uh, <clears throat> Mark, I'm going to ask you a little more about your research and where you found this material. But let's say a little background for uh, our listeners about the 154th itself. What what was the story of this regiment? Well, the story uh, of the regiment. Mean, obviously, you've written plenty about it. But in, in in summary, what was its service? In in summary, they were organized during the summer of '62 in response to Lincoln's call for 300,000 three-year volunteers in Cattaraugus and its neighboring Chautauqua counties joined the Army of the Potomac and were assigned to the 11th Army Corps. It's For seven months, they made inconsequential marches and changes of camp in northern Virginia. Then they had their baptism of fire at Chancellorsville, where, of course, the 11th Corps was routed. 
The 154th was part of Colonel Adolphus Bushbeck's brigade, which formed the well-known Bushbeck line, which was sort of the 11th Corps' last line of what skimpy defense they were able to put up against Jackson's onslaught. And the 154th New York lost 240 out of 590 men present at the battle, which is a 40% casualty rate and the fourth highest regimental loss in the Army of the Potomac. Now, most of those must have been captured. No. Really? There were a large number of captured, but there were also uh, a large number of killed and wounded. Okay. Uh, they... Uh, an officer of the regiment put it years later that the unfortunate thing about the 154th at Chancellorsville was they hadn't learned how to run when they should have yet. It was their baptism of fire, and consequently they wanted to show their mettle, and I think that it was a foolhardy as well as a forlorn stand at Chancellorsville. They were driven back into the woods and, and shattered. Two months later, they were at Gettysburg. Fortunately, on the morning of July 1st, 50 men were detached from the regiment to go on a reconnaissance, leaving roughly 265 or thereabouts uh, to take part in the first day's battle. And again, similar to at Chancellorsville, when the 11th Corps was driven from the plains north of Gettysburg back into the town, the 154th and the other brigade of the 2nd Division, 11th Corps, had been held in reserve on Cemetery Hill. And the brigade, then under command of Colonel Charles Coster, was ordered to the outskirts of Gettysburg to cover this retreat. A very similar scenario as to what had happened at Chancellorsville. And Coster detached one of his regiments, and so the 154th and two other regiments, the 134th New York and the 27th Pennsylvania, wound up being posted in Coons Brickyard on the northeastern outskirts of Gettysburg, where they were soon overwhelmed by two Confederate brigades, those of Harry Hayes, Louisiana Brigade, and Isaac Avery's North Carolina Brigade. The 154th had more than 200 casualties there. 77% of the men who were in action on that first day of the battle were made casualties. Now, the vast majority of those were captives, mm -hmm. and they continued in captivity, and uh, almost 30% of them wound up dying as prisoners of war, either at Bell Island in the James River opposite Richmond, or at Andersonville Prison. Uh, okay, so after after um, Gettysburg, there was a, a period of rest, uh, and then after the Battle of Chickamauga in the West, the 11th and 12th Corps were transferred to the Western Theater of the War, and the 154th went out there. They spearheaded the march from Bridgeport, Alabama, to Lookout Valley, which opened the famous Cracker Line, suffering one casualty during the skirmish that they took part in at that point. A member of Company C had his finger shot off. They participated in the Chattanooga fighting, although the 11th Corps was largely held in reserve, and the 154th only suffered six men wounded in that battle. Then they marched with Sherman. Uh, Sherman picked the 11th Corps to accompany him to the relief of Knoxville, Tennessee, and that was one of the toughest marches the regiment made. Uh, very difficult conditions, uh, little uh, poor uh, shoes, 
clothing was wearing out, few rations, uh, difficult weather, toughest march the regiment probably made during its service. Returned, spent winter camp in Lookout Valley, and then, of course, embarked on the Atlanta campaign. There were approximately 240, 250 men present for duty at the opening of the campaign, and by the time they marched into Atlanta, they had been reduced to about 100 men after being in battle at Doug Gap on Rocky Face Ridge, Rosaka, New Hope Church, Pine Knob, and Peachtree Creek, Georgia. At Atlanta, my great-grandfather joined the regiment after spending his 21st birthday in Chattanooga on his way down to join them. He, en he enlisted in September of 64. And the regiment made the march to the sea, participated, of course, in the siege of Savannah, made the march up through the Carolinas, and proudly marched behind General Sherman in the Grand Review in Washington. They were discharged at Bladensburg, Maryland in June. I should say mustered out. They returned to Elmira, the big New York State Depot at Elmira, for their final discharge later in that month and returned home. So this this regiment had a, a certainly a varied career. They fought in both theaters. They fought in some of the most famous battles of the war: Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, the Atlanta campaign. They're part of the march to the sea. In some ways, you, you couldn't have, have chosen a more representative Union regiment in terms of, of widely varying experience. This is true, but they chose me, not vice versa. Uh, a, a good point. Yeah. Um, normally, we take a little break at this time, but until we hear the music telling us to do so, we'll just keep going uh, and get, get more conversation in. Civil War regiments, in general, are, are known to historians to have had a very high uh, esprit de corps, uh, part of the subtitle of your book. Is it possible, though, to have too much of a good thing? Is it possible for the, the spirit of the regiment to be so intense that it hinders as well as helps the performance of uh, the unit, uh, or the army as a whole. I raise this question because it's something that I've argued in all for the regiment, that, that Union regiments in the Army of the Ohio were so insular and so inward-looking that while they were very hard to defeat individually, they didn't cooperate so well. And you address that argument in the introduction to your book. Uh, what, what What's your view on that? Well, I agree with you that in large Civil War regiments were insular. In the case of the 154th New York, they had a peculiar situation in that they were brigaded with German-American regiments during their, during their tenure with the 11th Corps. And that was a very detrimental to brigade esprit de corps. However, when the 20th Corps was formed by the merger of the 11th and 12th, uh, brigade esprit de corps began to manifest itself in the 154th New York, and they had they began to have loyalties to their division, uh, the White Star Division of General John White Geary, and they also developed corps pride as well in the 20th Corps. They they idolized General Joe Hooker and, and lamented his departure from the corps when uh, Sherman gave him the boot. But they had no love for General Howard before that. They were neutral about Howard. Uh, after Chancellorsville, many of them became negative about Howard, and the religious members of the regiment 
of course, never ceased to champion Howard because of his uh, his devout uh, practices. So Howard, you know, one thing that I, I pointed out, I think, in the book was it's interesting to me how little the men commented about their higher-up commanders. Which I'm, I guess I would argue suggested again, they're focused on their, their immediate circumstances. I We're going to take a little break here and come back and talk about the men themselves, the, the way they lived in the 154th New York and other regiments. And we'll do that with Mark Dunkelman on Civil War Talk Radio. 